Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me as ever. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? Good. I try to make as ever sound a lot more enthusiastic. <laughs> I do worry about as ever. Time. As ever. <laughs> Lucy's here. I really put some energy into it. Like this a time. bad penny. <laughs> um, tell me, have you been enjoying a little uh freedom to roam now that restrictions have been eased a degree or two um I don't know about freedom to roam it does feel a little bit different doesn't it it feels nicer my my roaming is more or less in the in the same places but it's nice to see that um things are beginning to tentatively open up people are beginning to talk about when theatre and music and things like that might start that all feels good doesn't it exactly and the bookshops are open I went into a bookshop for the first time in well an eternity and it felt so strange it felt like more like a museum or an art gallery everyone was sort of gazing and in wonder and not touching and moving slowly and speaking in hushed tones well our, there's one um the art local one you could order it online and then you could go and pick it up through and pay for it through the window mm. And so, and, and it was like, it was like getting a takeaway, but you could get takeaway <laughs> books. So that was brilliant. And brilliant. so I, I, we didn't feel too afflicted by that because you, you know, you could see what was in the window. And as I say, you could, you could pay for it through the window. So we were, we were very lucky with that. Is that what did you, what do you have to tell me what you purchased now? I'm afraid. Oh, I can't remember loads of things. I, I, I certainly bought some books about birds as did absolutely everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> And lots of other stuff. Can't remember. <laughs> I went in. Um, I went in looking for *The Lowland* by Jhumpa Lahiri, which I thought I already owned. And so this is the penalty for chaotic bookshelves: is that occasionally you have to buy something that you know you know you already have, mm. but you cannot find. And then I, I didn't come out with that in the end. I came out with a triple decker of Henry Green novels. Oh, living and loving and partying and things. That yes, yeah. I have yeah. never. I've always meant to to read 
to read him and I have never done so. It was He's been recommended a bunch of times, most recently by a TLS podcast listener, in fact, John Langridge, who, um, who described him um, or had heard him described as a writer's writer's writer, which sort of put me <laughs> off, to be honest. But there you go. That's I went in for Jumper Lahiri and came out with Henry Green. Yeah, it's pretty good, Henry Green. He's really interesting. Well, this show will will not be featuring Henry Green. We will perhaps save that for another podcast when I've actually read some. Uh, instead, coming up on this week's show, a previously unpublished novel, The Man Who Lived Underground by Richard Wright, the African-American writer best known for Native Son, now sees the light of day about 80 years after it was written. Douglas Field will tell us about it and dispatches from NB, including Sylvia Plath's fun little hobby and the three greatest novels of the 21st century so far continued. But first, we're going to talk about a new book by our esteemed contributor, Patricia J. Williams, published next week by TLS Books. Giving a Damn, Racism, Romance and Gone with the Wind is a deeply researched and deeply felt inquiry into the roots and legacy of racial injustice in the United States. The extended essay turns on the classic Civil War novel by Margaret Mitchell, published in 1936, which still exercises a powerful force on the American imagination. It comes second only to the Bible as the nation's favourite book. But the romance that still moves so many is, of course, rotten at its core. And to relish the myths of old Southern ways is to paper over cracks that threaten now to widen and swallow whole these apparently United States. In this week's TLS, we're running an extract from Giving a Damn. And Patricia Williams joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Patricia. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks so much for, for coming on. I was trying to summarise your book to a friend over the weekend, and I said that it's about among many, many things, the power of myth and how Gone with the Wind and the narrative structure and ethos it it represents stalks American society. Does that seem to you a fair introduction? Yes, indeed. Uh, It really is about the way in which parts of our population are enchanted. And that enchantment only goes so far if you are on the outside of the heroics of the internal narrative of such myth. And so the degree to which Gone with the Wind dresses up in flouncy frippery, (laughs) the image of Scarlett O'Hara and plantation life as dependent upon the invisible ex-nominated labor of slaves. As the descendant of slaves, I feel somewhat excluded from that. And to say that hurts the feelings of those who really want to be Cinderella. It's an American version of Cinderella, of being recognized, of being beloved. And that is an ideal of womanhood that divides us right down the center because it's so premised on a legacy that lives today. And because in the book, I mean, you're sort of circling around a a central paradox, aren't you? There's, you know, and there are other related paradoxes that come from from this original one, but the paradox that the novel represents is sort of how this romance and the enjoyment of it uh, coexists, or in fact exists precisely because of its opposite, the horror uh, and exploitation and and cruelty. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a, I think the book opens with my overhearing a conversation that was, about a gentleman seated next to me in a restaurant who was describing the great joy he felt in his 
son's wedding, I believe. And it was held on a, an old plantation. And plantations these days are much too frequently tourist destinations. And it was a wedding, apparently, which everybody got dressed up like Scarlett O'Hara in antebellum outfits. And one of the more disturbing parts of plantation tourism is that the waitstaff in the Deep South is still largely African-American. And so the reiterated visual theater of this <laughs> is not so different from what it was 150 years ago or so. And that is, uh, that's part of the problem, that I heard this very, very differently. And I knew that if I had sort of put my head over the banquette and said, you know, excuse me, that sounds like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's wrong, you're dancing on graves that he would have been resentful and heard me as politically correct. And I think the invisibility of my history as it clashes with his imagined history is part of the unfurling tension, but also the conversation we really need to have in the United States. It's also, it seems particularly um, sort of outstanding that that should be sort of repackaged and resold and and, and celebrated. You know, you, you can pay to... I mean, not quite relive it, but as you say, to superficially relive it, that seems an extraordinary um, proposition. And again, I think it makes sense if one gets lost in Gone with the Wind. <laughs> it is, there is certainly a great deal of racism in it, but the central carries the soul along narrative of that book is about fluttering hearts and dashing gentlemen and horses riding into the night. It is a rewriting, I think, and that's the deeper point of my book. It's a rewriting of Thomas Dixon's The Klansman, colon, A Romance of the Ku Klux Klan. That was the title of Thomas Dixon's book, A Romance of the Ku Klux Klan. That is the book that was the basis for D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation. And in that book, it is much more explicitly tied to horrendous racism and the necessity to kill and beat back African-Americans and uh, recently emancipated slaves. And it is a pretty vivid description of the animus against political participation, the necessity to kill. That book and that movie gave rise to lynchings in the United States and really fueled the passage of Jim Crow laws. And so that's the ugly underside of <laughs> a romantic tale, which then Margaret Mitchell made much more palatable, I think, and displaced the Southern lifestyle to the antebellum period before the unhappiness of the Civil War. And I mean, part of what's obviously so interesting, um, both in terms of Dixon's book and Gone with the Wind and the film that was made, and of, of, of that these things, these kind of cultural products date from a time when it was presumed that that was American culture, the culture. It was a, a culture of mass produced by established organizations run by white men. And so these products come with an authoritative stamp of kind of collective cultural ar artifact, don't they? But we don't live in those times anymore. Well, we shall see. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. It's been such a tumultuous year. Forgive me. <laughs> I, I do feel like we're at, a, some, we're at something of a precarious moment. You know, the just day before yesterday, there was the apparently um, accidental, supposedly, release of an America First caucus 
that celebrates in terms that are so close to Thomas Dixon's, it scared me, that celebrate the return to an ideal Anglo-Saxon version of America and uh, the language in that particular um, memo that apparently has Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, fingerprints all over it, but also seems to relate to a kind of Trumpian influence. Um, that, that's worrisome, I think. Well, I mean, certainly when, when I say we don't live in those times anymore, I, I certainly don't mean that it's over. I just mean in terms of the idea that there is one culture, uh, one kind of yes. powerhouse yes. of production. And I suppose what we're seeing now is uh, you you write in, in your book about uh, blackface, yes. um, yeah. you know, Amos and Andy. And, and this now we're at a time where it's particularly interesting and fraught and certainly not exclusively American, this theme of how people are dealing with blackface because there is awareness, certainly in some corners, that this is not okay, while other people feel that for it to not be okay is an attack on, on them and their culture and what you know used to be okay, so why isn't it now? Yeah, I think this really is a time, delayed as it is, where we're working towards some kind of mutual awareness. And certainly in the times that Dixon wrote and even Margaret Mitchell some years later, there was a voicelessness that you know slaves were prevented from reading, not permitted to publish, not permitted to marry, couldn't make contracts. The traces of what they thought and felt are so rare and so few and far behind. You have Frederick Douglass's narrative. You have 12 Years a Slave. But these very occasional narratives are quite the exception. And the entire population of those who were enslaved the legacy is in a few handcrafts and their building and their, and, and to some degree, the, the photographs of the machinery that was used to control them, the leg irons, the branding irons. <laughs> and so the rest of the story is family history. And so that's also what my book is about, the, the degree to which this is an oral history. It lives in the living rooms of African-Americans, just as I think the secret life of the Ku Klux Klan of the gatherings for public lynchings, including children gathered to watch or to have picnics while people were lynched. We don't have tremendously official narratives about that, but it lives on in families that witnessed that brutality and that cruelty. And so I think that what is different now is that many people are starting to write about those legacies, as in Tulsa, Oklahoma, looking for the mass graves and the bodies that were buried as a result of such violence. You diagnose in, in American attitudes towards identity and place a deep ambivalence. Um, and this sort of nods back to what we were talking about before in terms of paradox, how something can be both. So, you know, ambivalence in that original sense of being both things at the same time. That You diagnose this, this ambivalence about the notion of home specifically. Can you expand on this for us, please? Oh, yeah. I think the ability to be in one place over time has been such a longing within the African-American community or any diasporic community or forced diaspora. We are not a nomadic culture per se, but I think the need to escape is a very important part of the legacy of slavery. And it is so complicated, not just by the need to escape from plantations, the need to find the pole star. The Underground Railroad looked at, you know, to the North Star for the direction north to flee the Southern states, the slave states, to escape to Canada. At the same time, leaving home was the tremendously 
fraught experience of being sold down the river. If the master or the owners of plantations died, or if their estate were in debt, they would sell their assets, which included furniture, horses, and slaves. And that meant families could be broken up. Children sold away from their parents, husband and wife, or lovers, because frequently they weren't permitted to be married. But those who had settled in as mates could be parted and never see one another again. And because they were illiterate, it was very hard to reconnect even after emancipation. And anti-slavery organizations did provide services whereby they would put ads in newspapers. Have you seen a woman of this description goes by the name such and such? And there are in the African-American History Museum in Washington, DC, the relatively new museum, one can read these very sad, have you seen, have you seen, have you seen? the little <laughs> newspaper clippings that so remind one in today's world of, you know, after great disasters, after 911, after Katrina, you know, have you seen my loved one looking for? <laughs> and of course, in those days, many of them didn't have any last names other than their latest owner. And it's a sense that this kind of journey, this flight, this running away, this escape coexists again with a completely different narrative around what it means to take to the road and to to, yes. to go for freedom and adventure. And, and the fact that these two things coexist and sort of just can't be reconciled. Yeah, in the United States, I mean, the other, the, the immigrant myth, or the, the white immigrant myth, I should say, is one of mobility and cutting one's roots willingly because one comes from pogroms or famines or the Cossacks are coming. <laughs> and so the ability to move about and to change one's name and to reinvent oneself is the companion to this myth. And that has not always been very accessible to African-Americans. That's, um, that's another paradox, isn't it? Because that's the the idea of the American dream. It yeah. reminds me because we were talking about um, Nomadland ah. and also to some extent Minari recently. And Nomadland had that, had that double thing. It wasn't fueled by race, but it was fueled by poverty. So of course there is an intersection. Yes, there. yes. Yes, and I think that that uh, film or, or documentary, uh, tele-documentary, whatever it is, um, really speaks to the degree to which there's always been this sense of identity and property that is profoundly American. And I think African-Americans are at the center of the experience of being at the will of other people. And that will being the fact that you are in a property relationship with the people who feed you, um, that one becomes an extension of that property. But poor whites have also been in this box. I mean, one can read Grapes of Wrath and <laughs> remember the Dust Bowl. And this is a condition that I think many white people in today's world, particularly since World War II and the GI Bill created a new American middle class, have forgotten or in some denial about that if you just work, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the degree to which some of these inequalities are the products of bad policy, bad structures, bad institutional decisions is something we need to collectively revisit. You talk about America's crisis of identity, and, um, and this is something that goes well beyond the recent presidency of, of, of Donald Trump, who, no surprises, features quite prominently in your book. I wonder whether Trump's presidency added more anger to a sadness and a, a disappointment that was already there. The book has a has a note of lament running through it. You ask at one point, um, 
what has happened in the fluctuating tension of American narratives to allow Steve King's vision, its current political ascendancy, over Emma Lazarus's. Perhaps you can explain those references for us there and, and what you see as happening in this crisis of identity. Yes, uh, Steve King, a former congressman from the Midwest, was very noisy in his anti-immigration statements with which Trump was in complete alliance. But Steve King said, one cannot replace the civilization with, quote, other people's children. And that so-called replacement theory (laughs) is a chant that went up during the neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville a year and a half or two years ago. It is reiterated in a new Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's multiple statements. And it is in such contrast with Emma Lazarus's poem, which is engraved at the base of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. And under the Trump administration, that poem actually was the subject of a rewriting by a member of Trump's administration. It didn't get far, but nevertheless, it was a rewriting that said, give us people who can stand on their own two feet and bring money into the country, basically. And then clarified (laughs) that what he meant was European immigrants. So the exact opposite, in fact, of what it says under the Statue of (laughs) Liberty. So, I mean, this this book, it's clear, you know, it'd been simmering away for a while, hadn't it, before we first started talking about it, which would have been in, I think it was late 2019. So I'm wondering, you you must have been already writing when um, George Floyd was murdered. Yes. How does that continue to feed into your thinking? Uh, it is very much on my mind right now, because I have been trying to write about the trial. Um, it's it's It is one of the most moving and overwhelming experiences to have watched the prosecution of this trial. I am one of the few perhaps that simply couldn't watch the video of somebody dying. And when I watched the trial, I was caught off guard and I did watch the actual video and not just that video, the one that has gone viral, but all of the other points of view of other cameras uh, and angles that were taken that day. And uh, I think the thing that, that perhaps A colleague of mine said that one of the things that's most unsettling is obviously his death, but it is also the way in which Derek Chauvin looks at the camera with such calm, implacable neutrality that there's a way in which his gaze captures the eye of the spectator in a way that is almost an invitation to complicity. And that if you stay with his gaze, you feel involved in this death in a way that I think makes one want to shake it off, makes one have to step back. It makes you lose your breath. And I think that that may be why this particular video was so powerful, because Lord knows in the United States, we've seen death after death, death after death. I think it is that profoundly brutally you know, impersonal gaze that makes this one particularly distressing. And that thing of being kind of forced to step back and, and look at the thing, that's sort of, and I, I don't say this at all lightly, but that's a, a source of, of fragile hope, I think, in your book, the, pe- the sense that people can step back, be, you know, breathless about it, but can face up to all of the things that have been glossed over 
in the vision of America as, you know, land of the free. And that's the play in, in the title of your book, isn't it? I mean, because there's a, there's a defiance to, to the title of the book, which again, takes us back to, to Gone with the Wind. That is a very fragile hope that I have right now, because I have seen again, time and again, where some people are able to rationalize away. Well, police are in a dangerous situation. Well, they, you know, they, you know, they feared for their lives. Well, it was a split second decision. That simply isn't the case here. You know, first of all, you have police witnesses and a number of them, including this man's immediate superiors, several of them, and the people who trained him. This was not split second. You live with the fullness of those nine minutes and the submissive, the the slowly uh, uh, dying body beneath him. And I hope that that's what finally allows people to feel what excessive means. And if they don't, I just worry that it gives license to the fact that it is always reasonable to be outlandishly afraid of the image of black men, because this is not about the reality of George Floyd's resistance. Well, Patricia Williams, we'll have to leave it there. This podcast is being recorded before the verdict arrives in that case. Hopefully by the time it airs, we'll have a sense of people do uh, give a damn. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Still to come on the show, Richard Wright's previously unpublished novel about a man, the human mole, who lives in the sewers. Sylvia Plath's domestic embellishments and the three greatest novels of the 21st century so far, says who? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we get to Richard Wright, Lucy, shall we turn to MB? Yes, yes, let's turn to MB. What have you noticed there? Um, well, I wanted to draw everyone's attention to this chair of Sylvia Plath's. So it's it's up for auction. And it's interesting because it has been, well, they attempted to auction it in 2018 and it, it, it didn't sell. So the chair itself, so it's a nursery chair that Sylvia Plath bought and later decorated for her daughter, Frida Hughes and um, so you can see these beautiful little hearts and flowers and twiddly bits for want of a better word. It looks a bit Scandinavian like you know like Scandinavian folk art it looks a little bit like that to me it's really it does. pretty it's lovely. Yeah I sort of thought like Tyrolese Alpine vibes. Yes yeah a little bit yeah. Yeah so she apparently she loved Sylvia Plath adored she said I just love painting woodwork and pretending I'm making my own house and, and Ted Hughes, in fact, in the birthday letters, wrote, uh, you painted little hearts on everything. So this was this was a thing. Um, and so she decorated this this chair for her for her daughter. Uh, and it was it was well used and well loved. Uh, and then Ted Hughes gave it to a friend for her children. And then it was returned to Frida uh, some years back, along with three balls of wool uh, that had been used to, to weave the original now, I think, completely destroyed seat. So it was up for auction in 2018 at Bonhams and failed to sell, which I find astounding. Uh, but presumably collectors were distracted by other items such as Plath's typewriter, her copy of the Bell Jar and her much underlined Roger's Thesaurus, uh, which she said, I would rather live with on a desert island than a Bible. I mean, who wouldn't? But so that that chair now, along with the wool, is being offered for sale once more, this time at Woolly and Wallace, uh, which is fitting um, given the seat. And it carries an estimate of two hundred between two hundred and four hundred pounds, which seems not very much 
to me for something like that. I think when it was on at Bonhams, it was given an estimate of three to 5,000. Maybe it will be one of those things that will, you know, go way above the... Snowball. The asking price. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe. It sort of makes you think as well about with this sort of a purchase, would you want to see it kept, you know, with, as as MC puts it in MB, curatorial respect, just as it is? Or would you you know, dare to use it? Because in a sense, that's also preserving it, isn't it? If it was well used and loved in its in its first life, and if that was what was intended in, in a way, it's about preserving the spirit of it rather than merely the image. Do you see what I mean? I do, yeah. I think it depends on, on the intention behind buying it. Mm. Are you buying it as a sort of literary... Objet. Objet, exactly. Or or are you buying it as a sort of family thing? Except it's if it's not your family, but it might be a family that you're interested in. Mm. Um, you, so you might be able to buy Sylvia Plath's chair for £200. I saw something else that I meant to, which this is not in MB, but if you've got nearly £3 million, you could buy Agatha Christie's house, I noticed. Mm. So somewhere in between, <laughs> if, you're, if you're either feeling a bit skint or really quite quite well off, there's a range of things. Her house in, in Wallingford, which looks really nice. Yes, or perhaps if you're feeling particularly flush, you could buy Sylvia Plath's child's chair to put in... Put it in Agatha Christie's house. <laughs> it's like the woman who ate the fly, who ate the etc. <laughs> it would be expensive, but but it would be good. It really would. If a famous person, a famous writer has lived in a house, does it raise the house price? Well, apparently the people, who, when they bought it, they bought it 20 years ago or something, it's family living there. Uh, or maybe more than 20 years ago, and they didn't know that. Oh. There wasn't a plaque, there wasn't anything. They bought it because it's a lovely house. And then, they, and then that, you know, now there is a plaque on it. So presumably, maybe it will. And I think it's maybe, uh, it's also the house, it's supposed to be a, the, the house that Miss Marple lived in is slightly based on that house. Oh. I think there are similarities. So if you're feeling sleuthy and you've got a spare three million quid, <laughs> you know what to do with it. <laughs> Um, there's also an update, isn't there, on um, on our new parlour game, The Three Greatest Novels of the 21st Century, to yes. date. <laughs> it's a bit of a rarefied parlour game, this one. <laughs> yeah, so there was, there, was, there was originally, we talked about it a few weeks ago, originally suggestions were All for Nothing by Walter Kempowski, The Lesser Bohemians by Ema McBride, and The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst. And then someone else has obviously suggested some more. It says a rival authority on the subject. Clearly, there's a lot of very eminent people um, writing in. <laughs> Agreeing uh, about the lesser bohemians, which they prefer to um, uh, a girl is a half-formed thing. Also adding Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman and Dodge Rose by Jack Cox. And Dodge Rose is apparently a bit like Henry Green. Now, we didn't mean to do that, did we? But we have actually tied him up. Um, Henry Green, Joyce and William Gaddis. So that's clearly, that that person likes um, novels that, shall we say, push the boat out a bit. Experimental, um, formally interesting novels, it sounds like. Um, And then someone else wrote in, someone that might be familiar to you, um, Emma Knightley. (laughs) (laughs) We suspect it's not their real name who suggested Baudolino by Umberto Eco, The Last Days of New Paris by China Mieville, which I do know, both very, very interesting, and The Rites of Ecstasy by Ellen Lavelle. Um, I must say that I thought I thought that maybe Emma Knightley, if that is her real name, it isn't her real name, um, <laughs> was you, <laughs> briefly. Was just until until I, 
until I read on because it was postmodern game playing. Perfect. Perfect Lucy Dallas territory. China Mieville. And then something French that I hadn't heard of. So I thought, oh, well, this must be Lucy it Dallas. It absolutely is not. Um, but then I read on and it no, isn't. Because apparently um, the third book, The Rites of Ecstasy, is uh, it's not very clear whether it was in French or maybe it's been translated into French. Anyway, uh, it's a provocative novel. Shall we say it sounds a bit it sounds a bit racy. <laughs> The MC gives us the, just the first line. Gabrielle has always been prone to vivid dreams. And then he says, I think we'd better stop there. <laughs> so, there are raptures and tortures involved. I think involved. it's a slightly different sort of novel, put it that way. Experimental, but maybe not in that way. <laughs> well, it sounds, um, perhaps this isn't unfair. Perhaps it is, I don't know. But it sounds a dubious contender uh, to two best novels of our greatest novels of the 21st century so far but I haven't read it so I will I will say no more but Lucy you're uh, you're going to tell us about a different book that was published in the 21st century but not written in it yes exactly we're going to talk about a book that is being published in the 21st century but is arriving about 80 years late so let's wind back um, in August 1941 if you happen to be reading that month's issue of True Detective magazine, you might have seen a story about the crime Hollywood couldn't believe, which was in fact a series of crimes that had been committed a decade earlier. Thefts of money, food and even typewriters from a number of properties with no obvious means of entrance or exit. And the culprit, it turned out, was a former sewer worker who had taken to living in the sewers and realised he could get into places more or less at will. Also reading that magazine was Richard Wright, whose first novel, Native Son, had been a huge success the year before. And Douglas Field has written about the connections between these events, and we're delighted that he's here to talk about it with us today. Douglas, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Very nice to uh, to be here. Um, so what happened after Richard Wright read the story about the crime Hollywood couldn't believe? Well, Wright had a burgeoning interest in crime fiction, and he read this story with a sensational headline, the crime Hollywood, uh, the crime Hollywood couldn't believe. And he was really struck by the plot. Um, I mean, it was based on true events where a white sewage worker, or former sewage worker who'd been unemployed, started tunneling his way into properties. And he, he stole a number of things, uh, linen, typewriters, um, bits of food. And um, he wasn't caught for, for ages. And Wright found this really fascinating and drew, para drew parallels between the uh, culprit who was called Herbert Wright, no, no relation, and the ways in which African-Americans were pushed out of sight in American society. And so there was a, a, a kind of wonderful twist where he reimagined Herbert Wright as an African-American in, in his short novel, which became uh, The Man Who Lived Underground. So it's because it's very, it's obviously, it's a very fertile metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, W.B. Du Bois, one of the leading activists and, and writers of the 20th century, an African-American uh, prolific writer, had made the case that African-Americans were living behind the veil. So there's already this metaphor that Wright would have been clearly aware of. So he gave it into his publisher. And why do you think the publisher turned it down? Because uh, Native Son, which I had referred to as first novel, which he published in 1940, I think, which you call his incendiary first novel, it had been a tremendous success, hadn't it? It was a huge success. It was picked up by the Book of the Month Club and sold around 250, maybe even a quarter million copies in three weeks. Wright had to edit it down some of the, some of the more violent episodes of the novel, but it was a huge bestseller. Um, 
bought mainly by white readers. Um, but then it's that difficult second novel. He'd written a collection of novellas or, or kind of extended short stories in 1938, uh, Uncle, Tom, Uncle Tom's Children. But I think his publishers were unsure. It's, it was a, it was a, a slender piece. Um, Native Son is a very long novel. This is around 60 to 70,000 words. And also I think the message uh, about police brutality was, I mean, it's very, very um, current now, but I think it was too shocking for his editor and, and, and perhaps the agent too. He obviously didn't agree. He was very attached to the story, wasn't he? Sort of, it, it seems that like he couldn't let it go and he kept on trying to, to place it. Yes, there's something rather poignant about it. Um, I mean, it's only now that Library of America have published it, but he he tried uh, on, on many, many occasions. Um, some people who know uh, the posthumous collection of short stories, Eight Men, will will know a, a short version of The Man Who Lived Underground, and that, that came out in 1961. But he tried, he published a few pages in 1942 in a, a little magazine called The Scent, and then a slightly better known selection of writing, Edwin Seaver's uh, book, was called, which is called Cross-Section, a collection of new American writing. But he, yeah, he kept trying to, to get it published. And it was it's a real shame uh, that it, uh, it was only just being published. And I think now with the descriptions of police brutality, uh, the novel is, without giving too much away, is centered on an African-American who's uh, picked up by police and tortured and then confesses under duress for a crime he didn't commit is extremely poignant in today's uh, racial politics. Yes, and it's, it's, as you say, it's all, all too relevant, unfortunately. Um, do you think as a novel, I mean, the, the, there is, the, you know, the obvious social um, import of the message, and do you think also as a novel it succeeds? I think it does in places. I think, uh, I, and I wanted to like it slightly more than I did, and it's definitely worth reading. And there are some beautiful lyrical passages. And and one of the points I try to make in the review is that right is, is is capable of writing lyrically and very softly. But there's a sense that, you know, in 1941, that Wright couldn't afford to be nuanced and couldn't afford to not to slightly hammer home the message, which and we can, I can absolutely see why. Um, in, in an essay that he wrote in 1937, he makes the, the case that African-American literature hadn't really been studied by white critics. And so there wasn't really the space uh, or the time for him to tread softly. So I think there are parts of the novel where it suffers from right hectoring rather than implying. Um, but there's, it's well paced. There's some really good um, scenes of, 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 of uh, kind of noir fiction and and great uh, dialogue and there's some beautiful lyrical slightly surreal descriptions of the uh, narrator's experience underground so it's it's absolutely worth reading and it's quite a gripping novel but it's uh, slightly falls short I think in terms of um, writing say by James Baldwin uh, with whom he's often compared. I was going to talk about that actually because you say in your piece that Recent critical opinion has been less kind to Wright and to Baldwin, whose work has enjoyed a startling renaissance, or to Ellison, whose reputation as a nuanced jazz-inflected stylist is unsurpassed. Is fair to say that I mean they're often compared, um, aren't they? Those three writers, but also they knew they all knew each other. It, I mean he had a fractious relationship with both of them, didn't he? He did. Um, so Baldwin was uh, fourteen years younger, and Wright was something of a mentor to him. He helped him get a fellowship uh, when he was working on his first novel which became Go Tell It on the Mountain and you know Wright was 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 quite an avuncular slightly aloof figure but he was very helpful. Um, Wright went to 
Paris uh, and, and, and ended up settling there in 1947. And Baldwin went the following year. And Baldwin's first major essay was Everybody's Protest Novel, in which he lambasted Wright for his use of protest fiction. And so it became uh, a slightly sort of almost a kind of Oedipal moment where uh, Wright felt absolutely betrayed by Baldwin. Ellison uh, was the best man at Wright's first wedding. I think it was his first wedding. He's married at least twice. And they were very, very close. Um, but then, well, Wright died in 1960. Ellison, um, quite a bit later in Baldwin in 1987, Ellison began to kind of distance himself from Wright uh, for some of the reasons uh, that I've outlined. There was a sense that Wright kept hammering home the same messages and Ellison wanted to uh, distance himself and, and, and adapt more. And I think there's something rather poignant about that. I, I kind of think of Wright as a, as a rather a lone figure who who wanted you who's absolutely um, kind of has a, a brilliant sort of work ethic. He's got integrity, but he lacks that ability to adapt. And he dies, of course, as the civil rights movement is is gathering momentum. And Baldwin Ellison kind of detached himself from the civil rights movement. He sort of believed that that politics um, would dilute. Uh, a writer's craft, but Bourbon, as we know, uh, was very much uh, at the forefront of much of the civil rights movement. It's interesting that that story as a, as a background, how you how you sort of read Richard Wright's career and the success, or well, the the failure of 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 this novel that is only now seeing the light of day. How you read it against the backdrop the backdrop of the story of criticism and changes in what was looked for and valued in in literature and and and, and Wright's inability to. Well, not even necessarily inability to, probably it was a mixture of inability to and also perhaps not being allowed to break out of the mould that he had been, uh, that he had first arrived in with Native Son, in a sense. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, it, you know, it's a choice. Um, you know, I think Wright made the decision that he needed to um, forgo subtlety and nuance. Um, and I make the point, I mean, it, I, I, it might be slightly overstated in my review, but uh, you know, John Crow Ransom is, is writing influential work from the late 1930s, uh, where the new criticism uh, becomes a way of, of, of teasing out um, ambiguity and nuance. And, and I kind of feel that, I mean, it struck me that, that whilst Wright is crafting um, The Man Who Lived Underground, that, that yeah, he's, he's sort of out of step with that, that development. And in some ways, fair enough, you know, I kind of respect him for that. But in terms of some of the literature that's emerging, it, it already feels slightly dated. And there's a sense, I think, that, um, you know, these, these, it becomes apparent why uh, Wright, uh, well, he doesn't quite abandon writing fiction, but he struggles to get his fiction published. Um, he has this amazing uh, success with the first uh, first novel, not his first book, but his first novel, and then really struggles to um, regain form. And, and he, in some ways, I think that's um, because he's so devoted to the, the kind of politics of, of what he's doing. And he becomes increasingly invested in looking at um, developing countries and the, the effects of industrialization that he um, sees, perhaps sees uh, uh, fiction as something of a luxury. His, his later work is, is very much committed to um, looking at uh, kind of glo- the effects of global racism. And even in terms of the forms that he chooses, then he then he's sort of concentrating and concentrating. If you talk about fiction as a, a fiction as a luxury, by the end he's writing haikus, which are just so economical. Yes, yeah, I think that's fascinating. I mean, he he wrote a lot of poetry in the nineteen thirties um, when he was 
a member of the Communist Party, and he was very much committed to that cause. And I found it fascinating that, yes, that returns to haiku and, and the economy of it, which also, I mean, some of them are absolutely wonderful. And, and, and he's got a, 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 a real ear for, 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 for the economy of haiku. Uh, and bits of that, I think, come come across in in uh, the man who lived underground, the the, the economy. But there's um, too many passages for me that felt that felt as though he could be more um, could be more nuanced, could be more delicate. But he chose not to. Um, but as I say, I think there's something to be commended as well. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of them, didn't he? And, and it was kind of it seemed to be after he was recovering from an illness, and some of them are like little vignettes and some of them do seem to are looking at politics and race and injustice and some of them are more like traditional in the sense that they're you know noticing nature or you know coming to terms with the passing of the seasons or passing of time yeah i, I think it's it's a, it's a fascinating insight in, into right and i think there's uh, as, as a try and i hope i hope uh, you know say fairly in, in the review that there's a sense that 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 um right is seen as slightly one one dimensional almost slightly tone deaf but i think reading the haiku shows a very different side it's interesting that, that i think as well that, that leroy jones um who then became amiri baraka revised the haiku form into what he called the loku c-o-u-p and uh, which are really really um uh, kind of politically bristling with anger often very funny as well and, and i wonder i don't know if it's the case but i wonder if if baraka was influenced by right i kind of rather hope he was i was thinking what you were saying about the critics i mean in a way he he couldn't win could he because as you say on the one hand he's criticized for writing protest fiction that's that, that's not nuanced enough that's you know very straightforward and very hard hitting but then after he went to live in france um, some people thought he was friends with Sartre and Camus and stuff, apparently. Um, and there were people saying, oh, no, he's much too much influenced by by those guys. And uh, so he, he sort of couldn't win. Yeah, I th I, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a long tradition of Americans, uh, American writers settling in Paris, you know, sort of Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, but also quite a few African-Americans, you know, Baldwin, um, the, the cartoonist Dolly Harrington. Mm -hmm. Quite a few musicians as well um, were, were over there too, yeah. A, 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 lot, a lot of musicians as well, absolutely. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, he became, uh, you know, criticism was that he was um, he was too distant from the civil rights movement as that was uh, gathering momentum that he, and this is a criticism which is also leveled at Baldwin as well, but Baldwin came back and uh, in the 1950s and was uh, very much, uh, Kind of on the front line, and he was you know, Baldwin was gave scores of interviews um, and was very 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 visible. Whereas Wright seemed a little bit alone and and, and sort of detached. At least that was the that was the the sense, perhaps unfairly. Um, and there's also you talk about an essay that's published alongside the novel Memories of My Grandmother, and you find a different tone there as well, don't you, from from his longer work? Yeah, it's 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 a superb essay. He he wrote it originally with the intention of publishing alongside the short novel, The Man Who Lived Underground. And it's really long. It's about, I think it's about six to 15, 16,000 words long. And, and I think The Man Who Lived Underground is only about 60, maybe 65,000 words. And there are there's some beautiful recollections of his grandmother who appears in his memoir, uh, Black Boy, which was published um, to, to great acclaim in 1945. Uh, and there's some beautiful descriptions of her. Uh, as a woman, as she, she, his, his grandparents had um, been born slaves. Wright himself had grown up in Mississippi. His father was a sharecropper. And yeah, there's some beautiful, there's a kind of shift in tone, absolutely, where there's a kind of lyrical quality to the writing. 
which, as I mentioned, I, he couldn't quite sustain in his fiction. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's the 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 lecture and essay is is a genre that, that that suited him. I think it kind of opens him up in ways that his fiction didn't always do. You mentioned another unpublished novel. You just you just mentioned it in passing, which he was struggling to complete um, at the same time as he was writing *The Man Who Lived Underground*. *Black Hope*. Uh, another long novel, I think, about black domestic workers, and that remains, yeah, that remains unpublished. Do you think, do you think that we might perhaps, off the back of this Library of America uh, publication, that one might see its day in print as well? Have you have you read it? No, I haven't read it. I've read about it, um, and and yeah, I think it will. I mean, I think the, I mean, right in, in, in Eight Men, right? There's a fascinating story where uh, Wright tells the story of a man who can't get work. Um, so he dresses up as a woman uh, because there was more work available for domestic workers. Um, and it's a kind of fascinating theme. And, 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 and I, I don't know if, if, if the short story uh, bears any relation to the unpublished novel, but it's um, an area that, you know, that, that Wright, I think, um, shows his commitment to um, the labour market and to the, the, the kind of really difficult um, economic circumstances facing domestic workers. I don't know whether, I mean, I, 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 I would be surprised if it wasn't published by the Library of America. My sense is that this novel will, will, will do quite well. And I'd be interested to see uh, <laughs> the other reviews and wonder if I've been a little bit too harsh uh, in, 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 on right. But um, yeah, I think it will come out. Well, we've got that that to look forward to, as as well as the man who lived underground. Um, thank you very much for talking to us about it, Douglas. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Patricia J. Williams and Douglas Field. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.